Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Professor of English, Kristen Haig. Welcome to the show today. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Bright and early on a Monday morning. (laughs) Yes. And we've heard that... Well, I mean, everybody knows, like, they've had their own English professors, right, and and English teachers in high school growing up. And so I think there's kind of this notion or stereotype of what an English professor is, but I I don't know if that's completely accurate. So can you kind of talk about who you are and who, like, all of your English people are? What's the culture like? Sure. Um Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think when people hear you're an English professor, I mean, the the most common response is, oh, I got to watch my grammar. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a joke, but it's, you know, I think people do sort of think, well, we're stiff and we're watching your grammar and <laughs> correcting your grammar silently. And judge. And it's not the case at all. Why English? I mean, for me, English, it, it's from a love of books from a really young age and a love of reading. And um, yeah, I mean, those imaginative worlds that, you know, that authors can take you to. Um and so, I mean, in my own sort of career in education, it, that's what I always wanted to do. And that was my favorite through high school. Uh, but my parents were very practically minded. So um, they pushed me towards journalism. And yeah, and I thought I'd study journalism. Well, I did. I studied journalism for about a year and a half and hated it. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I mean, the, the, the sort of thought of, and this was early, so it was pretty, you know, straightforward journalism reporting because um, I'm kind of old. Um but yeah, just that a, a career, of, it felt to me like harassing people. Like that's not who I am is, you know, I want to study books. Um, so yeah, I, I made a switch. I, well, I tried elementary education for a little bit, secondary education for a little bit, and neither was a good fit. And so I just decided to be an English major and see where it took me. You just kept going back to books. It I was did. always books. I did. And then, you know, when the end of my undergrad, you know, my final year was rolling around, I just, I, I wanted to keep going. So it was really sort of, well, either I'll get into graduate school or I won't. And if I do, I'll study English and then I'll figure out where to go from there. I love that because I know, I mean, I'm an avid reader. I know Kelsey's an avid reader too. And so I feel like there's always that connection with other people who are avid readers and you get it. You know, I can understand why you'd want to pursue that because like you said, it just takes you into this whole different world. And, you know, the there are just so many different kinds of books and, you know, different genres and things like that. So I, I believe that you um, do prefer 18th century literature. And so could you maybe talk about what drew you to 18th century literature? Because I feel like that's a very specific it you is, know, it is. genre. Um, yeah, I might, you know, my education was, my undergrad wasn't straightforward in a lot of ways. I didn't sort of go survey classes into, you know, study Victorian lit, study American lit. It was really random in a lot of survey kinds of classes. So um, I went into grad school not really knowing what I wanted to study. I thought I'd study the Renaissance, but I started working with a couple of um, just really amazing uh, faculty members who were working in the 18th century. And they just, you know, they sparked my interest. But what really you know, what really got my interest, I'm, I consider myself a feminist scholar, um, was a lot of the recovery work that was happening at the time with women's writing. Um, you know, because it was early days of the internet, you know, most things you couldn't find them, you know, you couldn't even search for things. So there was still this treasure hunt aspect to tracking down texts and um, and finding them. And it was really exciting. Um, 
and also really frustrating, it could be. Uh, one of the texts I was working with, it was a, a microfilm disappeared, and a, a whole year's project was based on it. And just the way libraries worked, the library showed it was on the shelf, so they wouldn't they couldn't get me another copy of it. Um, so it led to this sort of long process of how do I solve this problem, and it, it eventually I solved it. My mother's husband's son had uh, visiting privileges at Brown University's library and was able to get her a day pass so she could go and spend a day photocopying. They had a print copy of this book that had disappeared. Um, I love the scavenger hunt aspect to it. It's so fun. What, yeah. what, year, what year was this? Do you remember? Um, I started grad school in about 93, and it was about 95, 96 when I really started doing the deeper you know, mm-hmm. the deeper research, um, you know, and being able to visit libraries and, and really search. And it's still exciting. I mean, there's still a lot out there to discover. I was going to say, that's just so interesting because I think we do, you know, nowadays take for granted that I can just hop on Google and pretty much Google anything I want. Or at our library, the resources are just so vast because they have this whole digital archive that you can get to. So I love getting to hear that story of, you know, you actually did track down the physical copy, you got your mom involved to help you out with right. it. And and like you said, it's this treasure hunt. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, I was able a few years ago, four years ago, I... um I spent a week studying at a, a library, a special collection, 18th century collection in Louisiana um, called the Knoll Collection. And it was amazing. It was a week of just hanging out in the stacks. And the way it's set up, it's a, it's a good-sized collection, but they only have one scholar visiting at a time. So except for the room where they locked up the really, really expensive texts, I could just wander this collection and pull the books I needed and bring them into this study room. And yeah. Is there something magical about holding an old book. Oh my gosh. There's so much. Yeah, there really is. Um, like it has a different smell to it, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But and I have, I do, I've got a few in my office that, and none of them are really valuable. So it's nice to be able to let students handle them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's something about an old book and the way it can fall apart. And it, You mentioned you're a feminist scholar. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for our listeners and, and what led you that way? What, well, what that means in terms of, yeah, my scholarship and, and the 18th century, and I've, I've kind of shifted into the 19th century as well. Yeah, I think because of, in part because of the time when I started, you know, researching, it was about that recovery of voices. Um, and, and we've moved kind of past the recovery, I think. Um, and what, what still interests me, what's always interest me, interest me are the ways that um, female novelists sort of engage with philosophical debates, um, intellectual debates, scientific debates in their fiction in really smart ways. You know, these ways that themselves are very strong arguments. I mean, they're writing during the Age of Enlightenment, so they're using those Enlightenment principles to sort of both demonstrate, you know, yeah, women's Enlightenment, you know, capabilities as well as, um, yeah, some more complicated arguments about femininity, about what it means to be a woman. And and. I'm sure in your classroom, you guys, are, you know, your students are reading 18th, 19th century literature, which, which is different than today's fiction books, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to women and their role in society. Can you talk about the two differences and, and the parallels? And You know, that it's something that it comes up a lot in, in the classroom. You know, I try to... I try to leave time for us to talk, especially when we're looking at issues like gender, uh, class. I mean, any of those issues we still, you know, we still talk about and see reflected in literature today. Um, and I think the same issues are still, they're there. I mean, and, and, and I hear where I, 
I really hear from it is my students, you know, or the, the ones who are, they're young, um, you know, they're, they're engaging with this literature, they're reading with this literature, and they're, they're seeing, yeah, they're seeing echoes, you know, across and in their own lives. And so I'd be curious to know out of, like we've talked about, I mean, there's so many genres, so many books, so many authors. What are some of your favorite personal authors? If you can narrow it down, I'm sure that's probably not an easy task. Oh, it's so hard. Uh, um, or maybe who you're most recently been kind of really reading and, and engaging with. I think the last few years I've been more interested in um, Victorian female poets well, and novelists. Um, I mean, it's hard to, you know, we study these periods and they've got these dates where one ends and the next one begins. Um, but that's not really how literature happens. So, you know, that, yeah, that overflow um, has sort of happened for me. And I, uh, we have a graduate certificate program now. We've had it for a few years in English. And um, I've, yeah, I've been able to teach a couple of classes in it. And it's a really good chance to develop something for me, something new, because with your graduate students, I mean, you're a student. Um, so I decided to do the Brontes the first time I taught it. And, and they're authors, you know, I've read their work before, but I've never, it was an opportunity for me to study them with my students. Um, and yeah, and it's led to, I mean, it's, it's just keeps expanding into my teaching and my own sort of scholarship and research. Um, yeah, the, the, different, the different ways that you can bring the Brontes in. Um, in parts or in, in whole novels, in a poem. Um, so yeah, they've been really interesting. And I've, um, Colin Carmen is, uh, Dr. Carmen mm -hmm. is, uh, he's a romantic scholar. Um, and he's been writing a lot, uh, working a lot with Jane Austen in the last few years. And so we have this, yeah, this running sort of very good natured sort of, he's an Austin, I'm a Bronte, <laughs> but I used to be an Austin. Um, what does it mean to be an Austin <laughs> or Bronte? I love that. Austin's, you know, Austin's world and, and they're, I mean, the worlds of both authors are fantastic and complicated, but Austin's tend to end in happy marriages. Um, Bronte's don't. And, you know, even Jane Eyre, which is kind of the happiest of, you know, of her, of the Bronte, of all three of the sisters' novels, you know, it, it's ending. The ending is dark. You know, why why is that? Do you know, like, the, the personal story behind the Brontes and how, like, what led to, to this Well, I think, always? you know, they wrote... A lot from what they knew, um, which was, you know, a life of intellectual pursuit. You know, they, they grew up rather secluded, um, but in a house full of books, and their father was a published author. Um, but they had to work. They were expected to go out and, and be teachers, be governesses. Um, and they, they didn't romanticize the world, you know, and they, that's what they wrote about. Austin's life wasn't all that fantastic. I mean, she herself didn't marry. She didn't ever achieve great financial independence. Um, but the world she created in her novels was, it was more idealistic. Um, and I think it, that ties too to the development of fiction at the time, you know, that fiction becomes more complex, more psychological as you move through the 18th and 19th centuries. And, you know, Austin's writing 30 years or so before the Brontes. So, yeah, that accounts, I think, for quite a bit, too. Yeah, there's that difference, too. You know, it's always interesting. So for me, I kind of switch up my reading habits. You know, I read, you know, new fiction. I've tried mm -hmm. some professional development books. I throw some of those in there. Those are a little harder to get through sometimes. And then right now, I'm actually revisiting George Orwell's Animal Farm because I hadn't read it in forever. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's just... It's interesting. It just takes you right back. I think it was probably high school was the last time I read it. And so now reading it as a 35-year-old woman, it's just interesting now with the knowledge that I have and being 
able to put that through a new lens. Oh, yeah. So I feel like, you know, there's so much that you're probably your students are exploring with you in the classroom with these novels um, mm-hmm. that are probably impacting them in different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of them, I mean, if they haven't, like Jane Eyre's a good one, if they haven't read it before they know it. It's, you know, it's part of their popular cultural knowledge. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I know, and sometimes I wish now reading Animal Farm again, that I had a faculty member to like, kind of guide me in it. Because like, here's what I think he's talking and, you know, making the parallels between, but I don't actually know. And do I really want to take the time to get on and research more of it? So I sometimes miss that being able to be in a classroom, have a professional that knows that all of that background and be able to have that discussion. Because I'm, you know, just reading it on my own and making my own conclusions. So I feel like, you know, students are lucky to be able to have our faculty members to lead them through, you know, these different literature that maybe they wouldn't fully understand if they didn't have you. Right, Mm -hmm. right. But I do think, I mean, that your your personal response is, I mean, it's central, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, yeah, there's the things your teachers can tell you, but, you know, I think if you don't have that personal reaction or connection... Well, that's kind of the beauty of, of reading, right, is that we all can read the same book, but we can all get different takeaways from it. And, right. and none of them are, are wrong. They're just our own personal. Right, right. Yeah, or like, you know, different takeaways at different times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring your different perspective. and uh, Those listeners in the car right now or on a run or whatever they're doing listening to this <laughs> podcast, they can't see you, but I'm here across from you. And you have these amazing beads around your <laughs> neck and your wrist, and they're so colorful and fun. Can you talk about like, what, what are they? Did you make these? Did you buy these? Did <laughs> you find them? So I made them. Um, and um, they're part of, you know, what I kind of think of as my my new COVID hobbies. Um, I, um, because of my husband's kind of health concerns, I've been teaching from from home since last March. So this whole year I've been online. And yeah, it's become a really interesting time for developing. I mean, at first, I think we were all just coping. But as the time's gone on, you know, it's like, well, what what else can I do with my time? Um and so the jewelry started with, it started with, I, I got a necklace that I wanted to be a bracelet. And so I thought, oh, I'll get some elastic and restring it. And that led to, well, now I need more beads because I have all this elastic. And, and a hobby was born. Um, and where it's, it's grown from there is it, sort of into, you know, kind of looking into studying the meanings of stones and crystals and um, making jewelry. I mean, for myself, but more for friends and family, you know, trying to yeah, thoughtfully put together colors and stones that I think fit with them. Um, I was at a birthday party last night with um, a few different girlfriends. And so I made us five bracelets um, and each one sort of represented a different chakra color. And um, yeah, we just sort of picked. They were all, you couldn't tell which one you grabbed and you could pick, you know, so it's fun. And it's- That's so fun. It's one of those things that, yeah. What are some other, other, other what are you calling them? COVID COVID hobbies. (laughs) COVID hobbies. Painting rocks. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I started where we live, um, our yard, it's it's desert landscaping. So I don't know, a couple of years ago, I started, you know, sort of just making little rock cairns in the yard. Um, and now I'm like, they're like rock cairns, crystals. Oh, is she an English professor or is she Stevie Nicks? Um, I love but, but no, and then, yeah, we we were spray painting some stuff this spring, you know, getting flower pots ready. And I don't know, somebody grabbed a rock and we painted a rock. And yeah, and then it was like, well, let's, you know, let's look online and see what to do with the rocks. And so we got ideas and started making ladybug rocks and monster rocks and I like putting them out, that. you know, and, and little notes on the back for the, the neighborhood kids. You know, you take them if you want them, leave them. But I've got some literature rocks out there now. I've got um, like a Tennyson quotes. rock that's um, uh, to strive, to, ste- 
to seek, to find, and not to yield, which is the last mm. line of Ulysses. Um, I've got a Dylan Thomas out there too. Um, and then a Hunter Thompson and a Stephen King as well, just to kind of mix it up. I love that. That's amazing. So fun. Yeah, yeah, my growing up, my dad actually always painted rocks, and I thought really? it was so goofy growing <laughs> up. Like I'm, you know, so embarrassed. But they like they actually are really beautiful, and I kept some over the years. And you know, everything from like a wolf or a skunk, or yeah, like a ladybug. So I, I like that there's right. someone else in the world who's painting rocks. Yeah, not, not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's. I mean, one of the yeah the upsides of being at home. You know. Um, I love the campus and I, and I love my life here, but it, you know, when you're here all the time, it's, you're here all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and I think teaching from home has sort of taken the, the, the school world and I mean, and the work is kind of the same, but it, it feels like there's, yeah. You're learning more about yourself, yeah, which is, yeah. which is really fun. It's fun. Yeah. So I can only imagine over the last 20 years that you've been here, you know, you've probably taught hundreds of students. And, you know, this last year was definitely probably a first for you, as it was for many of our faculty with teaching online. But, you know, I can only imagine the connections you've made with students throughout the years. So I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little bit about one or two stories and whether or not you can say the student's name or we can just refer to a him uh-huh. or a her. I would just like to hear maybe some stories about your students. Yeah, there's so many, you know, um, uh, one from just this week, um, a student in my English 111 class, um, I had sort of set up my course to post photos every, you know, every few days over the semester just to add some color. And uh, most of them were from my photo roll. And I'm from the East Coast originally. And um, p- photo came up this week of a hydrangea on Cape Cod. And a student's father was in town for his graduation and he saw it. And I guess he got really excited. Um, and he said, you have to email your professor and send her this, this Emerson poem. And, and so, yeah, and the student's emailing, he's like, my dad's a little weird, um, but he saw your picture and he wants me to tell you that he's a New England transcendentalist. And, and here's this Emerson poem. And uh, he also wants me to tell you how he dragged me to Walden Pond in Massachusetts when I was a kid. And I don't remember it, but <laughs> and um, I, it was just fantastic. It made me so happy. Um, so I emailed back and said, you know, I, I think your dad's great. And here's, here's a Wordsworth poem um, that you can share with him. Um, yeah. And That's amazing. I love that because it's the connection, I feel like, you know, yeah. literature that it brings like that. You've never met this student's dad, but he saw one photo, knew you were an English faculty member and then sent you this poem and you were able to send one back and it just facilitated this natural connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And their relationships. I mean, I still have relationships with students I've, I've had years ago I've kept in touch with. Um, I have a current student. I think I'm going to have her again in the fall, but we haven't had a class in about a year. And we get on Zoom every few months and just spend a couple hours catching up. Um, mm-hmm. We've been trying to schedule. I don't know why we thought we could schedule it last week or this week, but I think we're going to try for next week. Um, <laughs> what, what, sort yeah. of, what sort of careers can or do your students go into? I think maybe that's a question some people have. You know, they, they're, they love literature. They love books. They love the English language, but they're not sure besides teaching. How do you English? Yep. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that was, I mean, I think my parents' concern too. It's how do you translate this love into something practical. Um, I think there's a lot of ways. I mean, it's some of the, you know, the direct paths, um, a lot of our students, you know, will go into law, pre-law, um, not pre-law, will go into law from here, law school. It's a good foundation for that. Um, editing, professional writing, um, copywriting. Um, you know, some of our students do go on to be, you know, really successful creative writers, um, editors. There's um, overlap, you know, we've been trying to encourage overlap with the mass comm and English, um, you know, different ways, minors that you can develop, you know, to develop some more of those skills. So English majors are more, you know, uh, 
digitally literate when they come out with their skills and um, things like that. It, it is, though. It's, it's kind of tough to say you can, yeah, very specifically do this, but I think it prepares you for a lot because mm-hmm. critical thinking is, you know, is such a, it's so central to, you know, to what we study. Yeah, the English language and that critical thinking aspect is in every every job anywhere, right? Yep. And the communication piece too, you know, we hire often in our office different student workers, whether that's for an internship or um, if they're just wanting to get some experience within a marketing office. And I always look for students that have potentially an English major or minor, which might seem a little unusual for a marketing office, but we do so much writing in our office. And like you said, whether it's for digital, so for social or stories that are hosted on our site, whether it's for the Maverick magazine Mm -hmm. and a lot of copy editing. So I always find that when we have had students that I have one actually coming in here in July, she's an English minor, and I'm really excited to see what she can do and kind of put her put her to the test. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it works well with with other subjects and disciplines. You know, some students go in more creative directions. Some students go, yeah, in more copywriting, professional writing, editing. I I really like, I and mean, as much as I love literature, I love the precision of professional and technical writing too. Mm-hmm. You know, rules and yeah, so it, it's. I think it is a field that, you know, you can grow and develop in different ways or, or bring in other fields. And Before we wrap up here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> what is a book that you recommend to read? I know, I know you've read so many. I'm going to choose one. Yeah. I'm going to choose one. I'm going to, and, and, and it's the book. I've, I feel like I've saddled so many people in my life with this book, but I'm going to do it again. Um, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, so he is, I mean, I love, as I study 18th and 19th century primarily, but I love contemporary literature, and he's just one of my favorites. Um, it's, it's about a thousand pages long. Um, there's about a hundred pages of end notes, and they matter. Um, <laughs> if you don't read them, you won't understand the novel. And I, and I say understand the novel in the loosest way possible, because when you get to the end, it sort of redirects you back to the beginning. Hmm. It's one of those great, you know, it's like Ulysses, like Gravity's Rainbow, Proust, you know, that you sort of drag around as an English person and, and hope you get through at least one of them in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's worth it. It's it's fantastic. Well, there you have it. You heard it from <laughs> Kristen Haig here mm-hmm. on the Seaman House Special Edition podcast. So go out and get your copy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so much for having thank me. Thank you.